good evening. We turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Christ the story, his the glory. Thank you, Adam. Praise team, reach in. If my number, if my deciphering was correct, I counted 57 in Regen. Is that right? 57. Oh. Praise God for that. I'm just grateful for youth that are more sanctified than I was when I was that age. Because several Super Bowl Sundays, I tried to fake sickness. And my dad was never fooled except in 1980. Turned out to be the worst Super Bowl in history at that point. And so I was convicted by halftime. But it's great. This is more important, obviously. And I'm so grateful that you're here. And I just want you to know, adults, one, one of the unintended benefits of gathering is the young people see what's important to you. And it's an example to them. And so I'm very grateful for you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our evening. Lord, thank you for this time. We confess Christ is the story, his is the glory. May that be the case tonight through the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So on a night when the world places 106 players, 53 players on each team on a pedestal, and these 106 players receive all manner of glory, I think Christina Kelly's words from an article she once wrote to be quite helpful, insightful. Miss Kelly is not a believer, but she is a very successful editor of young women's magazines, and she once wrote a confessional piece called, Why Do We Need Celebrities? And she says, why do we need celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done we identify with in order to escape our inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential. But doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. I am part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. And that's one of the reasons Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are so very vital. I wish Miss Kelly could hear what Moses has to say to us. Chapter 1 teaches us that there is no human being who is inconsequential. We are all persons before God. We are all equally the image of God, every single one of us. And we are commissioned 
to reproduce God's actions in the world, to take dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth as his vice regents, as his vice kings. But lest we glory in ourselves, chapter 2 reminds us that we are all equally formed from the dust. We are creatures. Chapter 1 teaches us we are persons. Chapter 2 teaches us that we are creatures. So all of us have significance, but none of us are worthy of celebrity status. An important tension to keep. So you have our personhood, our creatureliness. Both of them must be kept in tension or an ethical crisis occurs. Remember, he's writing to to Israel, who's been given these great promises. And an ethical crisis will occur because they forget the tension. So I will submit that if chapter 1's description of humankind, if it's stressed at the, at the expense of chapter 2, then humankind will be deified and God's sovereignty will be compromised. But if chapter 2 in its account, written by Moses, these aren't contrary accounts, if chapter 2 is emphasized at the expense of chapter 1, then a kind of fatalism will occur and will be dehumanized. And so we need both. Uh, Chapter 2, starting in verse 4, that's where we are tonight, centers on a localized scene. So chapter 1 moves from the cosmos. God created the cosmos. And now chapter 2 is centering on a place in the cosmos. A place in time and space. The Garden of Eden, which we will look at more specifically next week. Whereas chapter 1 centers upon God and his his creation of the universe, chapter 2 emphasizes the place of humankind in his earthly confines. And I say that because notice in chapter 1, verse 1, you see the accounts that God created the heavens and the earth. But in verse 4, we see the second part of that. It says that in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so now he's centering on earth, whereas in chapter 1, he's centering on the entire cosmos. And in chapter 2, he's also centering on a place on earth, the Garden of Eden. That brings us to the first part of our passage, humankind's pre-fall habitat. The the fall hasn't occurred yet. So look with me in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now I'm just going to tip my hand a little bit. That phrase, these are the generations, is picked up one time in the New Testament. We'll close with that. Uh, the Greek version of this passage, Biblios Genesis, is picked up one time in, chap- in, in, in the New Testament, and it's important. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
And so our time through Genesis is going to show this regular phrase, these are the generations, ten times in fact. Ten times we're going to see that phrase, these are the generations, and its purpose on every time is to show us a new section. There's a new section that is opening up in Genesis. Um, there's also another signal here that this is a new section. Notice the name of the Lord here. Uh, in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens. It's the first time we've seen that phrase, that name. Chapter 1, it was just Elohim, the, the creator God, just a, a, kind of a generic name for God. But now we read Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. This is the covenant name for God. In fact, up to this point, the name Elohim has been used 35 times for emphasis. And so here, from chapters 2 to 3, the name Lord God will be almost, it will be used almost exclusively. And commentators tell us it's likely that it was a title that was known and experienced by humankind only in the garden until God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3. And so Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh is the covenantal name, the personal name, the name by which we are saved, right? Yahweh Elohim is the dominant name that we will read from here all the way through chapter 4. In fact, the compounding of the name Yahweh Elohim occurs 20 times in chapters 2 and 3. So 35 times Elohim is used in chapter 1, and 20 times Yahweh Elohim is used in chapters 2 and 3. And the reason these two now are combined in the Eden narrative is to, is to connect the, the title of his majestic name, his sovereign name in chapter 1, with his covenantal name uh, that we see as he makes covenant with, his, with these first parents, Adam and Eve. And so Elohim speaks to his transcendence. He is set apart. And Yahweh speaks to his eminence. He is personal. He can be known. He is, he is a revealing God to us. Significantly, the only place in chapters 2 to 4 where Yahweh Elohim is not used is when the serpent is in conversation with Eve. He doesn't use the name Yahweh Elohim. He doesn't know that name. If he knows it, he doesn't want to use it. And Eve does not use the name Yahweh Elohim. She uses the generic name Elohim. Or, yeah, Elohim. In fact, uh, Gordon Wyndham asserts the God they're talking about there between Eve and the serpent, is malevolent, secretive, and concerned to restrict man. His character is so different from that of Yahweh Elohim that the narrative pointedly avoids the name in the dialogue. It's very interesting. But until that dialogue, we see the work of Yahweh Elohim. And, and, and in verses 5 to 6, Moses is going to describe the untended condition of the earth prior to man's uh, creation. Notice in verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, 
And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And so we've established, starting in verse 4, it's going to point us forward. So this is not a second account of creation. Liberals will say you've got two different accounts, two different writers, and this is just utter nonsense. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are written by the same one, and he has different purposes. Uh, chapter 1 is kind of a macro. Chapter 2, he's microing in. He's, he's, he's coming down to a particular place uh, in time, particular space. But how are we to understand this? It appears here that he's actually going back prior to day three, before vegetation was created. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. He says, because the Lord God had not caused it to rain. But why would he go back prior to day three? Because day three is when vegetation was created. And plus, how can we understand that there was no bush or plant in the field because there was no rain when on the third day God created the plants, he created the, uh, the trees, and it didn't rain for at least a thousand years. So what's going on here? And moreover, he says there's, there was no man to work. There was no man to work the ground. When we know that man was created after day three when vegetation was created. So what's going on here? Well, when you come to verse 5, you're not coming to a time prior to day 3. <clears throat> the reason I make this point is because this is what liberals will say points to the fact that Genesis 2 contradicts Genesis 1. <clears throat> but that's not what's happening. Whatever the bush of the field and the plants of the field are, they are not the plants and the trees of day 3. But they are something else. So the bush here, uh, you, you would spell the word bush here in Hebrew, C-Y-A. Kaya, something to that effect. Uh, and the plant, Eseb, uh, Hebrew E-S-E-B, um, they haven't sprung up yet. That's what Moses is saying. He's saying at this point before the fall, whatever this bush is, whatever these plants are, they have not sprung up for two reasons. He says right here, they were dependent on rain. It's not going to rain for a thousand years. It's not going to rain until it rains on Noah. All right? And they were dependent on man tilling the soil, which he didn't do until the fall. So he's describing um, something that happens after the fall, but he's describing it in the context of a pre-fall condition. I know that can be confusing. In other words, these plants appeared after the fall. And so Moses is simply saying that as we begin the generation of man, we're in a pre-fall environment. That's what he's saying. Because what he's going to drive home to us is that when the fall happens, it doesn't just happen to us. It happens to creation itself. The curse is going to be on everything. Nothing will be untouched when sin enters the world. Now, to understand the significance of this language of shrub, 
and plant, we, we, we need to glance at the end of the story. If you look back in chapter 3, what did God say to Adam after he sinned in verse 18? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And there that word plants is eseb. And so Kenneth Matthews, uh, in his commentary on Genesis, um, he says plant here is best defined by its recurrence in the judgment. Bush then likely parallels Adam's thorns and thistles. So these are the, the bushes and the plants that will arise once sin enters the world. So God created vegetation to be good on day three, but what comes out of the fall, in a sense, is not good. All right? That's the point being made. And so in consequence of the fall, weeds and thorns and thistles and these particular plants came into existence. So did the, uh, the kind of plants that grow because they're cultivated by man. So pre-fall, there weren't any cultivated fields. In short, and the earth brought forth everything of its own accord. There were no thorns, there were no thistles that make the tilling process so very difficult. Again, he's setting up the fact that when sin enters, it's devastation. Um, That reminds us that it's devastation in our personal lives as well. Sin is pervasive and it has physical effects, not just spiritual effects physical effects. Now on that day also, notice in verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So this word for mist, ed, um, it it wasn't rain. Now scholars have have tried to figure out what this uh, this means, but most agree that it's some kind of underground stream that watered the earth. So rain is not present in the good creation. It was a mist that kind of came from underneath the earth. Uh, And they'll tell you that rain, in part, is behind the weeds that will enter. Thorns and thistles and so forth. And so Moses is saying that when man was created, he didn't have to deal with the kind of issues that came because of sin. It was a perfect world. It was a very good world. And so it was in that environment, and that brings us to verse 7, we see humankind's humble nobility. This really gets at the heart of what we're looking at tonight. Our last verse for the night. Then the Lord God, there he is, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life And the man became a living creature. So, among other things, this reveals, again, like Genesis 1, there were no transitional life forms, meaning the animal kingdom. Man does not derive from the animal kingdom. And springing from the earth reminds humans, reminds us of our creatureliness. We have humble beginnings, in other words. But it does not make us descendants of the animal kingdom. The term formed here indicates that creation 
was intentional. It was by careful design. Man is no afterthought. All right? Now, the reason I say that is because what our college kids are being uh, told in many classrooms at Auburn University and University of Alabama and every other school, and I recognize, praise God, for the Christian professors that we have at Lakeview and in other churches here in Auburn, but in many classrooms, what they're being told is that we're just a part of the, the random process, and we have no real meaning and worth and dignity. Any, any meaning that we have, we have to make a, a, on our own. We, we create our own meaning. We create our own significance based on our inward feelings, and that is rooted in an atheistic worldview. Listen to Richard Dawkins, for instance, who's perhaps the most famous atheist of our day in his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, the evidence for revolution. He says, it is a plain truth that we are cousins of chimpanzees, somewhat more distant cousins of monkeys, more distant cousins still of aardvarks and manatees, and yet more distant cousins of bananas and turnips. Continue the list as long as desired. Now, this man makes money. He sells books. People buy these books to read that. You come from bananas. Well, that's a far cry from what Moses has communicated. Again, uh, this is so foundational to the rest of the Bible. It, we, we would be naive to think that the devil's not going to attack Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Of course he is. Uh, God formed man. There's no randomness in the process which evolution is 100% built on, randomness. At the same time, man is of the earth. We are of the dust, in fact. In fact, this is stressed by a play on words. Listen to this. Man, ha-adam, where we get the word Adam, and the ground, ha-adama, the ground. So even our name, Adam, comes from the fact that we came from the dust, and, and that is a real emphasis in the Old Testament. Um, for example, when, when Abraham is pleading to God over Sodom and, uh, and wishes to emphasize his own smallness before God, here's what he says in Genesis 18, 27. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Moses is reflecting on this reality. I'm but dust and ashes. How can you be arrogant? How can you uh, have ethnic vainglory when you see yourself like Abraham sees himself? Or Hannah in, in praising God for hearing her request for a son. In 1 Samuel 2, he sa she says, He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And on one occasion, God reminds King Basha of Israel that it was he who exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people. Again, you never get away from Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, Job uses dust 22 times in his book to speak to our humble origins. It's hard to be arrogant and exalted in your mind when you see yourself that way. Moses is stressing our humble origin. 
And yet, even in our lowliness, there's nobility. Even in our creatureliness, there is personhood. Uh, Notice, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, which expresses here that there's a correspondence between God, the creator, and man, Adam, humankind, as his image bearer. Uh, In fact, this word for breath uh, is used in the Bible for God and for the life imparted to man, but never for animals. Never for animals. Now, to appreciate verse 7, we need to understand that in nearly all the ancient languages... So you could say Hebrew, uh, Greek, and Latin. The words for, for spirit and breath are identical. In fact, it's the same word that we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form, void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over. All right, so that's the same word for breath. The Spirit of God. Now, this breath, uh, we know elsewhere, it brings spiritual understanding. So, for instance, in, in Job 32, listen, it was the spirit in man. That's the word. It was the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. That's how, that's the reason uh, animals don't worship God the way we worship God. Of course, we saw in Psalm 148 that all creation praises him in its own way. But we worship him as as image bearers because of this breath, this spirit that God has placed in us. It it also brings a functioning conscience. Proverbs 20, verse 27, the spirit of man, get this, is the lamp of the Lord. Uh, So the spirit is like a lamp that God lights. Now, we know in our sin state, it's darkened. That lamp needs to be relit. But, but it's the reason you come to a sinner on the street, an unbeliever on the street, you don't have to wonder if they've been already hardwired for God because they have the spirit in them that God breathed into them, which is the lamp of the Lord. It just needs to be lit by the gospel fire, the gospel light. So moral and, and spiritual capacity is granted to humans by virtue of his inbreathing. Animals are never convicted of what they do. Tonight, I was studying for the sermon, and my cat wanted me to pet her. And I was ignoring my cat. Ella was sitting there, and that cat came over and went, wham, with her paws. And I thought I had taken a shot in my hand. And that cat was no more convicted than the most pagan person you know. She just looked at me because I deserved it because I wouldn't pet her. Pets don't have that capacity, but we do unless your conscience is seared. That is an unhealthy place, a dangerous place to be. In fact, this spirit that is placed in us, which is the lamp of the Lord, as I said, It is darkened by sin, and therefore it needs regenerating. And that's why when we take the gospel to people, we know that they have that lamp in them. But we know it has to be lit. 
We're not the ones who light it, but God uses us to bring the, the message that will light that lamp. And there's no lamp too dark that God can't light. Um, that's why uh, in John 20, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. <laughs> I love that. It's almost like it's, John is replaying Genesis 2. But in this case, they're already created. But they need to be, in a sense, regenerated. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is John's version of the Great Commission. The one who was sent has now become the sender. And as we are sent, what happens to us happens to those that we are called to, to believe. But here is our creatureliness and personhood put in perspective, I think. In the words of Anthony Hokema, as we close tonight, to be a creature means absolute dependence on God. That's Genesis 2. We're from the dust. All right? To be a person means relative independence. We're persons. We're image bearers. To be a creature means that I cannot move a finger or utter a word apart from God. To be a person means that when my fingers are moved, I move them. And that when words are uttered by my lips, I utter them. To be creatures means that God is the potter, we are the clay. To be persons means that we are the ones who fashion our lives by our decisions. So there you have the tension. But in order for our decisions, okay, to be consistent with the law of God and to be consistent with what magnifies his worth and glory, our spirits, our lamps have to be lit. But for God's spirit to indwell us, we have to be made fit. You see the problem? So the spirit needs to indwell us, but we're not fit for the spirit to dwell. And therein comes the gospel. Jesus said, or Peter says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. That is where the spirit comes in and lights the lamp. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Jesus, by his resurrection, makes us fit by his atoning sacrifice for the Spirit to dwell. He comes in and he lights the lamp of regeneration. In fact, and I, I'm going to close here with this. I told you this earlier. This phrase, Genesis 2-4, so very important for us. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Those, that very phrase in the Greek which the New Testament audience would have, would, have, would have read. They would have read Greek translations of the, whole, of the Hebrew, many of them. It's only found one time in the New Testament, and it's intentional. It's found in Matthew 1, verse 1. And here's what Matthew says to his audience. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
He is using the very phrase that we find in Genesis 2-4. In fact, it's found one other time in the Old Testament, Genesis 5-1. We'll look at that in a few weeks. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's the point he's making? We are, we are God's image bearers. And God has breathed life into us. We have great nobility. But our lamps have been darkened. And so he sends a Savior. He sends a Savior. In fact, Matthew one twenty one, who came to save his people from their sins. So that the lights could be, the lamp could be relit. So that we might function as his humble, noble image bearers. The way God intended for us to function. And this is a word also for any unbeliever that might be here tonight. Um, You were made for God. Ecclesiastes 3. So as Adam comes forward, or musicians, Scripture says eternity has been set in your heart. You've been created with a, a vacuum that can only be filled by an infinite being. And you have a lamp inside of you, your spirit, that can only function when you submit to that infinite being. And the way you submit to him is by confessing your sin of rebellion and trusting in his provision for your sin, Jesus Christ. And so as we stand and as we sing, we'll have pastors here at the end of the aisle. We'd love to talk to you about that reality. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.